The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we take a look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On the podcast, we'll be looking at the possibility of a partitioned Ukraine, learning about how the culture wars are affecting farming, and asking whether video games can be considered an art form. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine this week, The Spectator's Russia correspondent Owen Matthews writes about the rumours that Vladimir Putin could be looking to broker a land-for-peace deal. Unfortunately, Owen says, this deal would mean the de facto partition of Ukraine. Owen joins me now, along with the spectators Svetlana Monitz, who writes in this week's magazine that Ukrainians have learnt not to trust any deals that Putin may offer. Owen, could you start by giving us your insight on the state of the war at the start of 2024? Well, very simply and very sadly uh, for the Ukrainians and for the West, um, despite a massive injection of uh, of U.S. military aid, the front lines have gone nowhere. The last major Ukrainian breakthrough was the recapture of Kherson back in November 2022. And since then, the much vaunted um, spring, summer, autumn offensive has managed to recapture up to 12 kilometers, but that's along a uh, 1,300 kilometer long front line. So the question now becomes, um, what is necessary to win the war? The Ukrainians have provided some answers to that. Um, I mean, Valery Zaluzhny, the chief of the Ukrainian general staff, has provided a shopping list of uh, powerful long-range rocketry and weapons. But again, that doesn't actually solve the issue of actually recapturing territory and crossing those minefields and smashing what's called the Surovikin line, those deep Russian defensive lines, uh, which the Russians have, which the Ukrainians have failed to do, they've um, in the year of hard fighting. And the news peg of my piece this week is uh, that the New York Times reported, I think reliably, that there has been consistent attempts by the Kremlin over the last few months to reach out and propose a ceasefire in Ukraine, not a peace deal. Those are two rather importantly different things, but a ceasefire that would freeze the conflict along the line of control. And that's what Putin has been trying to, uh, those are talks that Putin has been trying to get going in a secret back-channel way since uh, as early as September of, of uh, last year. And Svetlana, in, in, in your piece, again, going back to the question of how the war is going as we enter 2024, you begin by writing that about Zelensky's New Year message, which you say had a more grim tone than a lot of his speeches in, since the war began. You know, He stopped talking about the idea that victory might come any time soon and focusing more on the idea that Ukrainian needs to brace for a pretty long fight. Given the sort of grimness of the situation, as Owen has just outlined, why is it that you think that uh, any kind of peace deal or compromise or talk of a partition, uh, why do you think that's, that's not on the table? 
first, I will start that right now uh, U- Ukrainian government is focusing, focusing on uh, mass conscription and also the domestic production of weapons because uh, there are fears that if the Trump comes and American aid stops Ukraine, we still need to keep fighting. And why we are sure that we will be still fighting anyway, even if the West stops helping us, you know, is because we had several deals with Putin before and all of them ended of Russia turning away their promises and attacking Ukraine. Uh, it's happened two times in 2014 and in the last year. And, you know, right now they are shelling a lot Ukraine. And just in the last four days, we have seen like over 500 missiles and drones uh, attacking the country. And a lot of Ukrainians feel it like deja vu because in 2014, uh, right before uh, Ukraine started uh, negotiations on Minsk agreements with Russia, they massacred Ukrainian soldiers in Avdiivka who were retreating through humanitarian corridor that Putin agreed and said they can retreat but unarmed, and they massacred most of them. That happened when our former president Poroshenko was in, in Minsk, in Minsk, and the soldiers were calling him asking, please talk about the ceasefire because they are going to kill us all. And then Ukraine agreed. And I think right now, uh, Russian strategy is something similar, that they are bombing Ukraine a lot and hoping that seeing how bad the situation, Ukraine will agree to freeze the conflict. Again, as Russia doesn't keep its promises, uh, Zelensky's government won't agree to that. Hmm. Well, so, Owen, that, that point from Svetlana there, that, that several deals have been made with Putin before, and Ukraine has learned the hard way they, they can't rely on his hollow promises, doesn't that make the idea of a, a ceasefire or a partition of any kind just politically unsurvivable, not just for Zelensky, but any Ukrainian leader? The f- formally giving up Ukrainian territory and acknowledging the legal reality of partition is indeed politically unsurvivable. That is true. Uh, I think a ceasefire is a different proposition because um, I don't disagree with anything that Svetlana has said about what happened in the past. Russia is deeply untrustworthy. That's certainly true. Any eventual peace deal for Ukraine will have to come with security guarantees from the West either membership of NATO, I think that's actually frankly unlikely, but something very close to de facto security guarantees, uh, which give de facto protection to Ukraine against future Russian aggression. The true question that I would pose to Svetlana or to, and in fact have posed to Zelensky's close advisors is uh, Mikhail Podolyak, most notably who I quote in the piece, is, uh, okay, like, so we're going to, mobilize more people you you are going to mobilize more people you're going to ask more more people to fight and die uh on a front line and where are we in january 2025 let's say let's say the front lines haven't moved i mean is the the basic logic that russia is untrustworthy is not going anywhere so what do you then do with it you know are we talking about actually pushing russia out of every inch of territory that it has uh, that it, it has conquered. Are we talking about pushing it out of some? Are we just talking about, for instance, liberating uh, Melitopol and the you know, Zaporozhye and Kherson regions on the on the on the left bank of the Dnieper? Or are we talking about taking Donetsk? Are we talking about taking Lugansk? I mean, the 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 the, the question really becomes where 
where do you draw the line short of actually full reconquest? Because if re- full reconquest was not possible in 2023, how is it going to be possible in 2024? And how is it going to be possible in 2025? There comes a certain point where somebody, Zelensky or his successor, quite possibly Valery Zaluzhny, the senior military officer in Ukraine, I mean, someone is going to have to make a ceasefire. That's It's, it's not going to be a forever war for one very important and simple reason, and that is a forever war is essentially a Putin victory. That's what, you know, Putin would settle for a ceasefire, but if he can't have a ceasefire, then he'll just have a low-intensity low war because that's another way of screwing up Ukraine forever. Hmm. Well, Svetlana, I, I wonder if you'd like to respond. I, you wrote a very good piece for The Spectator uh, last year in which you said that Zelensky needs to be more honest with the Ukrainian people about a Ukrainian military breakthrough and how the counteroffensive was was going. If, as Owen says, full conquest is unrealistic and perhaps increasingly unrealistic, does it not fall on Zelensky to to say so? Uh, the thing is that even when Valery Zaluzhny wrote that uh, there is no beautiful breakthrough imminent and he listed all of those we- weapons that are needed for Ukraine, he didn't say that it was impossible. If Ukraine actually receives all the weapons and uh, artillery shells and the mining equipment, it's possible to make a breakthrough. But I would say that if it doesn't happen, for example, if in the end of the year, for example, uh, a lot of people, a lot of soldiers die and but the front line doesn't move, then of course they will have to look for options. But I think the only thing that can allow Zelensky and Ukrainian government to talk about ceasefire or any peace talks is very strong security guarantees mm. from from the allies. But and sort of NATO membership and, and nothing nothing short of that. Uh, um, I think yes. I mean, I understand that NATO can't accept the country that is at war as its as its member. But what kind of security guarantees? would make Ukrainians feel that the war won't start again, you know? So it has to be some kind of a deal that will be reliable because even with Minsk agreements we had and France and Germany backing them, but anyway, we see what happened. And when Russia actually invaded for the first few months, uh, I mean, Ukraine was praying for weapons and we were receiving Russia's bulletproof vests, fuel and helmets. So it has to be something different. If Russia starts a shell in Ukraine again, then the weapons must arrive in the first week, something like that. Hmm. But but Owen, um, I mean, you end your piece by saying that, uh, that Kiev could be backed by security guarantees short of full NATO membership. But would Putin really accept any kind of deal along those terms? Putin is, uh, I've just been speaking to the very estimable and brilliant Mark Galliotti. Um, he has always argued, and very correctly, that Putin is a, just a pragmatist. He'll just take whatever he can get. And uh, uh, I don't think the, the polls and the bolts are correct uh, when they say that if he takes Ukraine, it'll be us next. I mean, I think there's zero evidence that he actually plans to attack, that Putin plans to attack NATO. Um, I think that's, uh, but let's, uh, by parking that for a moment, there is a reason why in NATO, but, but you know why Finland and Sweden have joined NATO because it's the most world's most powerful collective security organization. The uh, the, the accession of 
Ukraine to NATO is going to be much more problematic, I think. Um, but there is a, a sort of nato light uh, formula, I think. Whether Putin will accept it, um, he, will, he, will, he will accept... I think what is you know the, the maximum possible that that is uh, that is feasible at that moment and depending on who he's negotiating with, which is precisely why there's not going to be any major deal from Putin's side until he knows the outcome of the November 2024 U.S. presidential election, because he has no zero incentive to stop to make a deal before he knows whether Trump is going to be in power. But I, the irony is, and actually one of the key points of my piece is that a deal that Trump will do and the deal that Joe Biden will eventually do if he is re-elected is the same deal, despite a massive difference in presentation between the two men and style and attitudes and rhetoric towards uh, Ukraine. There's only really one deal on, on the table. And that's kind of the point of my, of my piece is that uh, the Kremlin has been trying to negotiate. That's not necessarily incredibly uh, significant because I don't think that they actually have any serious intention of making concessions. And the, the point about negotiation is a willingness to, 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 to concede something. But what, it, what, what is important about that piece of news is that I think it's forcing US policymakers to focus on not just a sort of general rhetoric around compromise and deal, but actually to look at what a deal actually means. And a deal actually means letting Putin, allowing Putin to de facto, not de jure, but definitely de facto, hold on to these provinces. And he's going to do exactly what he did to Crimea. That's, I mean, his plan is really clear. He took over Crimea in 2014. There were um, everyone who was pro-Kiev uh, was basically left. They fled. The, 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 the remainder who were pro-Kiev were arrested, tortured. There, were, there was a huge amount of immigration from Russia proper. Um, he essentially made Crimea Russian, and he's going to clearly do the same in the east, in the provinces that he occupies in in Crimea, in 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 in, uh, in Ukraine, and basically hope that in ten years' time, the de facto situation on the ground means that you know, nobody remembers that, you know they were ever Ukrainian. That's his plan. Uh, first, my question is: What about the tribunal and the responsibility for all the war crimes that Russia committed in Ukraine? Does the deal making a deal means that all is forgiven and he can just take the lands and nobody is prosecuted? And second, about that, for, for example, about Crimea, that pro-Ukraine people or either fled or went prisoned. It's not. It's right, but it's not the whole picture because when I was in Crimea undercover in 2018, I was reporting from there and I met a lot of people uh, that first, I mean, they were talking to me in Russian, but till I, when I said that I came from uh, Western Ukraine and came to report when I saw that I could be safe and talk about that, they actually were telling me that they live in disguise because yes, if they tell anything that they are supporting Ukraine, they will be imprisoned. And there was uh, one woman that I met that uh, I, I can't say where she lives, but she invited me to her house and there she had a Ukrainian flag and all this stuff, but it had to be hidden in the box because she is afraid that her neighbors will give her up to the neighbors. So those people keep living there because there are their houses, uh, their jobs or businesses and all this stuff. and. They are not ready to leave. And the same goes uh, people in other regions. And we had a huge example when Ukraine liberated Kherson. How many people, there were like thousands of people meeting them on the streets with flowers, flags, and and happily that they were 
again uh, under Ukraine's rule. And we can't say how many people in occupied territories are pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian because right now they can't express anything because they will be or conscripted to the Russian army or imprisoned or something mm. else. Yes, Owen, I wonder if you'd like to, what you think about that, because you say in your piece that a lot of the places that Svetlana just mentioned, that reincorporating them into Ukraine from Russian control wouldn't make the country more stable. But Svetlana is arguing that obviously a lot of people in these territories are Ukrainian and see themselves Ukrainian, so so to do want to be reincorporated. So the, it's a very um, sort of complicated and difficult picture, isn't it, for any any um, Ukrainian leader who, who who may have to consider uh, a, a, any any partition de facto or otherwise. Well, last time I was I was personally in Donbass was a long time ago. Um, it was in 2015, but. Um, in in uh, over the last uh, two months, I've actually been um, reaching out to a lot of people that I met back then and their friends and their contacts that are still there uh, in the occupied territories. And I spoke, um, I suppose, to I suppose uh, something like sixteen different people uh, that's been corresponded with. I mean, it's a snapshot. Uh, it's not real reporting. Obviously, uh, we don't have the, the the opinion polls. But the question of how they feel about Ukraine and how they feel about being forcibly liberated and uh, by by Ukrainian forces are two different questions. Because, I mean, regardless of how they might feel about Ukraine, and by the way, Kherson, I think, is not a very typical or uh, um, indicative. I mean, obviously, it's what Ukrainians very often say, yes, but when we liberated Kherson, everyone was delighted. Yeah, well, that's true, except that actually um, the major, the, the top officials of Kherson actually were very happy to, to, to collaborate with the Russians. There was a whole um, swathe of, of, of teachers in Kherson that were willing to um, um, you know, teach the Russian curriculum during that the, those, those months that they were under occupation. But also, crucially, that's actually very much in the western part of central Ukraine. I mean, that's really, you know, it's uh, 100 kilometers from Odessa. I mean, it's, it's less than 100. I mean, it's it's that's pretty much western Ukraine. If you go to Donetsk, um, the people that I spoke to were, you know, frankly, very, very war-weary, all of them. I, I, I was literally looking for somebody actively that would say, I want Ukrainians back. And I was asking all of them, like, okay, well, you feel this way, like, you, you know, you, you, you don't want to be liberated. But like, do you know anyone, anyone that does? And like, said, so oh, we'll ask this guy, you know, get, get their WhatsApp number. And yeah, I did not find a single person. I mean, they may exist. I don't disagree with Svetlana that many people personally in their heart of hearts are disappointed and sad and want to be part of Ukraine. I'm sure there, there are many people like that. But in terms of recovering these territories, we have to be really clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about fighting the people of Donetsk for Donetsk. And there's a very large contingent. Many of them have been mobilized, you know, rather brutally into the Russian army. But there's a, a, about 130,000 people, according to a, a military analyst um, called Perun, who goes by the moniker of Perun. He's an Australian national security advisor, former. And he um, says that about 130,000 men from Don, from the Donbass, in other words, from Donetsk and Lugansk, have, are fighting with the Russian army. So when you, you know, let's say there is a Ukrainian breakthrough, they're going to be fighting the people, you know, some of them, of course, will, you know, get out their secret Ukrainian flags and run over to the, and, and say like, you know, thank God you've come. But I think that's not very many of them. I think that, that, that you'll actually be fighting a, very many local people from the Donbass who will regard a Ukrainian advance not as a liberation, but as a war of, of compulsion and, and occupation. 
And that's actually a different, makes it a different kind of war, morally speaking. Uh, so so the, the, the really crucial moral question here is um, not only, you know, how can we liberate the occupied territories, but you know, how feasible and how politically stable will an attempt to return to the status quo ante the situation before the war, how is that possible given the massive exchange of populations that has already happened? And that's what I argue in the piece is that unfortunately, partition has already happened. And in parts of Ukraine, it's been, it's, it's been, it's been ongoing since 2014. Uh, but on, like, just finally would like to respond. Uh, yes. Uh, since February last year, uh, Ukrainian army have been fighting those local people who were conscripted and uh, to the Russian army, forcibly, most of them, I uh, would like to mention. And uh, many of them were captured as uh, prisoners of war. And many of them volunteered to be captured as prisoners of war. And they said that they were forced because they would be thrown into prison in Russia or they would lose their jobs or their family was, would be in danger. So as you, I think as you are advising for indirectly advising for people who live in occupied territories who are pro-Ukraine just to leave those occupied territories and went to the Western Ukraine whatsoever. I think that with the same success we can uh, advise to, pe to pro-Russian people who live in Ukrainian territories that are currently occupied to go to Russia if they want to live there. I think it's the same. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's that, that's exactly the answer that that that, that I had from from many uh, Ukrainian officials. If they want to live in Russia, let them leave to go to Russia. And I said, well, what about if they actually born and bred in Donetsk or Lugansk, and that's their home and their, uh, their families? What, what about pro-Ukraine people and, and, that and, were and, born in Donetsk? But, but, I mean, but, there, there, but there's a word for that. It's, it's ethnic cleansing. Yeah, but, but hang on, but Owen, but Owen, what I'm saying is, what about then if if you're going to allow Putin to keep the territories that Russia is now occupied? Aren't you then doing the same thing to to the Ukrainians living in and the pro-Ukraine Ukrainians living in those same areas? Well, my, my strong impression is that, is that unfortunately it's already happened. I mean, this, this this is the problem that we're talking about is because there actually has been such a massive exchange of populations already. Like the you know the 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 people who I'm one of the women I spoke to. In fact, I quoted her in the in the, in the piece. Uh, she actually left Novokhovka in the in. Um, just uh, in Kherson Oblast um, in uh, May, I met her on a train in Poland with her lovely daughter, and we had like spent eight hours chatting. She was going to visit her, join her husband. She, being actually you know pro-Ukrainian, she got herself smuggled across the border. Um, you know, tried to make a life in Poland, kind of didn't work. Eventually, went home via Russia, by the way. So you know, th th there's th th this, this, the, the stories are really very, not 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 really very clear cut. I mean, people just want to live in peace and want to be left alone. So this poor woman who is pro-Ukrainian, if you ask her today, like, you know, do you like Ukraine? Would you prefer to be in Ukraine? Then she'd say, yes, I like Ukraine. But actually what she wants is just not, is for the war to be over. And that actually is much more and a much, a much more widely held position than um, the, 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 than being passionately pro-Ukrainian or pro-Russian. Pro and people don't like to leave their houses for, 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 for uh, unless there's a really good reason. Um, in this woman's case, you know, her, she thought that there was not, not, not any possibility in that Novokovka would ever be restored. That there would only be the basic services and, and you know, water and electricity. And then actually it all came back again and she went home and under Russian administration, ultimately she doesn't care. She just wants to be, you know, left alone.
I mean, that's just one human story. I'm, and, and, I, and I'm very conscious as a reporter that, you know, a handful of human stories, you know, don't, don't prove a point. But, but I, my impression is, and obviously, you know, Svetlana is Ukrainian from Ukraine. So you know, I'm, I, all I can share is my observations as an outsider of my travels in Ukraine. But I think that actually the, um, the central problem and that we're talking about is that actually there has been such a massive exchange of populations that actually most of the pro-Ukrainian people have already, uh, pro-Kiev people have already fled from the occupied territories because their life is such hell if they remain. But the basic problem is the same problem that faced the peacemakers at uh, Dayton at the, at the end of, the, of the, 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 the Bosnian Civil War. You basically, they found themselves having to accept the reality of ethnic cleansing, that these people have been expelled and would not return. And how do you then rebuild a country on the basis of that? Um, essentially, they rebuilt uh, Bosnia on the basis, you know, as three basically three separate countries in 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 the territory of one. It's a it's it's a, it's a mess. But the point is that if you're proposing, if 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 the alternative to that is to actually sort of fight, uh, spend a tremendous amount of blood and treasure recapturing all of those occupied territories, and against the will of the people who remain in those territories, I say who remain. I mean, there are plenty of people from those territories who feel differently, but they're not there anymore. So this is one of the this is the terrible moral dilemma about the situation is that actually the partition has already happened. Uh, we shouldn't forget that that most of those people who fled occupied territories they want to come back to their homes where they were born, where they were living, and I know dozens of them. I talked to dozens of them, and of course they want to come back, but they can't because uh, there is no freedom. There is anything they they will be repressed there, and I think when we talk about ethnic cleansing, is it is was. Russia doing with Ukrainians there because they kill you for the Ukrainian tattoo on your body. Nobody is gonna kill pro-Russian people if Ukraine liberates the long-occupied territories. If they want to stay, they can stay there. They just have to live under Ukrainian law. Thank you, Owen and Svetlana. Next, former Sky News and GB News broadcaster Colin Brazier writes about his new life as a farming student in this week's Spectator. And he brings to light how the culture wars have entered the world of agriculture. He joins me now, along with the farmer and former Tory MP, Neil Parrish. So Colin, you, you've written an excellent uh, notebook for this week's Spectator, uh, a farmer's notebook, although really it should have been badged up a farming student's uh, notebook, I suppose. And you write that at the age of 55, you're a student again, you are, you are learning how to become a farmer. Uh, could you start by telling our listeners what inspired you to get involved uh, in farming? And I wonder as well, have you sensed any resentment at all, I suppose, from some of the old farming guard since you're this new interloper onto the scene? <laughs> oh, even the spectator are trying to poke the embers of anger, aren't they? Gosh, yeah. um, no, no resentment. And um, we'll come to that with Neil, I'm sure, very shortly. But uh, no, no resentment at all. I think um, farming friends are actually quite pleased that somebody my age can take an interest and particularly since they see, I think some of them, how the media characterise farming questions, often characterised by ignorance, misunderstanding, willful or otherwise. And they're quite pleased, I think, to see somebody leap the fence and try to understand, in a spirit of humility, what farming's about. Like, for me, it's come by inches. There's been no great eureka moment. There was no moment watching Clarkson's farm when I thought this has to be done. It's come over a period of 20 years. A dear friend who's an agronomist who um, I was a sort of, you know, we did the pony club thing together with our children 
and he we would go for runs and he would say you know this is what's happening in this field and so on and so forth and he would take me to talks for an organization called the grow more uh, society which was a post-war institution set up so that we could grow more food uh, and other uh, assorted lectures another factor actually was listening to radio 4's uh, farmers uh, farming today i used to do the commute to work at sky news and would listen to to farming today and be often impressed by the caliber of farmers who would be talking about farming and then far less impressed from 6am onwards when politicians, apologies Neil Parrish, would come on and, and talk less knowledgeably with, in, in often in a very cliched way. And there was a freshness to their thinking which I really enjoyed. Rather more pretentiously, um, the, the, the reading people like Jamie Blackett, Gareth Wynne Davis on Twitter uh, and even people like Roger Scruton. Uh, the great late conservative philosopher, uh, led me down a road to wanting to understand something and not just be the same thing for my entire life. Mm. And Neil, when it comes to farming, you're a bit of a uh, an old hand. So I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners what it was like when you first started working on the land and, and then perhaps what's changed in the subsequent years? What are some of the challenges that farmers face today that perhaps they didn't face when you first started? Right. Well, first of all, I, I welcome Colin to, to farming. I think it's a great life. Um, you've got to be dedicated to it. But I think especially as you get older, I think growing crops and looking after cattle and, and sheep is a, is, a, is a great occupation. Um, so I wish you well, Colin. And so, um, yes, I, mean, I suppose the big difference with me is when I started, you know, I left school. I was milking cows at 13. I left school at 16. Um, we had um, we were, the farms were growing, but we were throwing 50 kilo bags around the fertilizer. We were we were doing a lot more manual work. It was all small bales in those days, uh, made 12,000 bales one year. I remember I was much fitter in those days. And so, you know, the whole thing then became more mechanized as the farms got bigger. But we I hit the sort of stage where farms were getting bigger. But we weren't as mechanized, really. You know, back this is in the in the mid seventies. Then we, you know, the EU then gradually affects us. We, um, you know, get milk quotas, all of those things. So, you know, I came through the whole lot. Came through BSE, and remember protesting outside the the Tory Party conference with the farmers uh, in nineteen ninety six. This is before I was elected to to the European Parliament. So, you know, so I've been through the gambit. I think, you know, I tease the youngsters today and say, you know, you, you know it's boy's job now because you just get in your tractor, turn on your computer and your, your air conditioning and your radio and off you go. But it's a bit more than that. There's a, there's a lot of pressure now. And, um, but what about, the, well, Neil, what about the solitude? I mean, just the point about the, the young kids, you know, uh, uh, getting into a combine harvest or a tractor more likely. And, you know, th- th- they want to meet people. They want to be with people. I remember s- sitting with a, with a farmer in a combine and saying, he was saying how difficult it was retaining young workers. And he said the problem was it's the, the, the solitude is the problem. They want to be with people. I mean, it becomes an argument actually for employing people at my age, at least during harvest time, for instance, if they can be trusted to drive a tractor. I'm sure you could be trusted to drive a tractor. Now, you, you've got a, a real point, because in one of the last um, 
uh, inquiries I did when I was select committee chair of, um, of uh, EFRA was um, looking into the mental health of farming. And a lot of that is down to the loneliness, down to the pressures, down to the financial pressures. A lot of the younger farmers, especially if they're involved in young farmers, they sort of have a network of people and they keep in contact by, by a phone and by all sorts of social media so as long as they engage in that i think they're okay but i think if you sort of leave college go on to a farm working you know long hours and on your own it can be extremely depressing i mean i had a, a grandfather and a father that i used to work for neither agreed with one another and i was caught in the middle you know so that was but it, it probably gave me a good political uh, background about dealing with, with with difficult situations but you know there i think in farms there's a there's there's a there's a generational thing as well very often if you're not the sort of first generation if you're coming into a, a family farm you may have grandfathers sort of still pulling the strings and not necessarily wanting to give up there's there's lots and lots of pressures isn't there in the farming community and I used to see it as I went round as a you know an MP um, as well because I think we you know we take it for granted that we produce this great food in this country farmers work very hard but, you know, their mental state is very, very important. So, Colin, you make a really good point. You see, you come to it later in life. You've got, you know, a big family between you. Um, and I think you've got probably plenty to keep you involved in other things as well as farming. And I think sometimes farmers are guilty, like many in society, you know, if you're a teacher or a doctor or whatever, it's become completely and utterly dedicated farming um and you do need to have dare i say it, a bit of other life as well and i think that is probably the challenge i think mm. colin in your piece you you draw attention to uh the so-called farming culture wars and i suppose the the mother of all the issues in the uh, culture wars around the countryside uh, and rural affairs at the moment is the issue of rewilding, which has a lot of support in a lot of institutions in this country, probably most notably natural England. But what are what are the objections that, that um, a lot of people in the farming community have towards rewilding? How can it be right if you're a fifth generation hill farmer, upland farmer in Paris in mid Wales and you want to extend your land when you hear that a neighbouring farm has come onto the market, how can it be right that you can't possibly compete with the bidder who is working through an intermediary in London for, let's say, a major airline who, in looking to offset their air miles and do a bit of green rinsing, decides that they want to buy that land and put trees on it? take it out of agricultural production to burnish their corporate green credentials. I mean, that just seems pretty potty to me. I mean, there are some wonderful things going on uh, in agriculture at the moment in terms of how people are thinking about things like regenerative agriculture, a very broad, nebulous term. But the danger is with that kind of almost evangelical thinking that it can sweep logic away before it. At the end of the day, and I think someone like Jamie Blackett, a former soldier turned farmer, based up in the Scottish borders, makes the point that it would just take, for instance, and it's not completely pie in the sky, a couple of well-directed well, uh, well, uh, uh, drone swarms over, say, Felixstowe and Lowestoft, the big container ports, 
And our food security really quite quickly in terms of food imports, we only grow 55% of the food we need in this country, would be seriously jeopardised. And we all know from COVID and before that those supply chains can prove to be remarkably fragile and uh, public confidence and, and, and the whole basis for a stable society that we enjoy because of food security is suddenly in trouble. So uh, for me, rewilding, the, the biggest problem with it is that it ignores the fact that we do not, as a country of 60 plus million people, grow all the food we need, nothing like it. And taking land out of agricultural production, to me, just feels like folly. Mm. Uh, Neil, I wonder, as the you mentioned earlier, your work as the, the, the former chair of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee, I suppose uh, rewi- rewilding must have come up quite a lot as, a, as, an, as an issue when you were when the, when you were in that role, what's your view on on the argument over, uh, you know, to rewild or not to rewild? Well, I, I couldn't agree with Colin more, and I was saying this when I was in Parliament. You see, we're very often taking out quite good land as well um, to plant trees on, and um, you know, what are we going to do ultimately when we're producing much less food? Are we going to import it? from Brazil that is busy cutting down the rainforest. You know, it's we don't get all of this imbalance. And I think, you know, herbal lays and using less fertilizer, uh, less pesticides, less fungicides, all of these things are excellent. Um, and I think some rewilding in some places works okay. Um, but you see, it's what we forget is that permanent pasture, you know, holds about as much carbon as trees do up to 20 years old. So, you know, I know we can have a little bit of an argument about methane gas and, and the like, but seriously, you know, we forget the benefit of of grazed cattle, sheep and, and milking cows um, in this country. Um, and we are a temperate climate and we need to grow food because I'm, I'm about to launch a podcast where we are saying we can do both and that is both produce food and have a good environment and I think the balance is going wrong and of course the money the city is going to sort of start you know and it's not all wrong for people to um, take this money but the big money is going to come from the airlines and others who are offsetting and and it's interesting with the population you know they they're very they become very green they get in their plane and so then they're quite happy then to have it offset on on good agricultural land because that sort of appeases their conscience you know I'm being a bit controversial I know but uh, I think that is and I've I've always been noted for being a little controversial so um, but it's, you know, that's the issue. I think let's get it balanced right. Um, you know, especially if you start going down the, the line, they haven't got there yet of introducing wolves and the like. And the whole thing, like I said, is is it's a managed world, isn't it? We're a managed farm landscape. And I think, you know, we're, we're in danger of, of not having that great beauty that's out there. We're in danger of not having as much access to the countryside, to be honest with you, if you go down too far down this rewilding route. So I, I think, you know, we, we just need to go a little slower um, and we don't need to take out as much good land to to grow trees on some very marginal land may it and of course the biggest states that's i mean this is what we were beginning to look into in parliament the biggest states you see are taking the land back they are taking it away from the tenants and they are then growing these big schemes because you know their city brokers have told them that's how they're going to make more money from their estate and uh, and i think this is very worrying well, Colin and Neil, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And Colin, best of luck with your uh, your farming. Will, thanks ever so much. And finally, 
Are video games a waste of time? The Spectator's literary editor, Sam Leith, a keen gamer, writes in this week's art section that video games are not a waste of time, but an art form which should be appreciated as such. He joins me now, along with Simon Parkin, a writer, contributor to The New Yorker, and the host of My Perfect Console podcast. Sam, you are taking on a new role for the magazine this month as our first ever video game critic. Uh, you were writing somewhat against the, the grain of public opinion in arguing that video games are a productive use of time. Could you explain to listeners what it is we get wrong about video games? I mean, I, I, I try and make two points about it. I don't think I necessarily argue that they aren't a waste of time. But I get the waste of time in the same way as a huge amount of our other consumption of arts and sports are a waste of time. You, know, you get nothing to show from it at the end except possibly some nice purple pixels. But the, the, I, mean, I guess my main argument is that they are unignorable and that they're interesting. And they're unignorable because they are, and you know, have been for a long time, vastly the most profitable and lively section of the culture industry. And I think that they're interesting because they contain such a sort of diversity of ingenuity of the dynamics of gameplay that you know they are an interesting art form and they're an art form which has so many different versions of it they're just so heterogeneous and so they involve so much ingenuity and and artistry i mean you know whether they are art capital a um i'm not sure but they are an art form i think and i think they're one that if you're interested in the culture you kind of can't simply dismiss. You, there's a line you have in your piece where you say that there's an arg- there's a convincing argument to be made that they're the least the video games are the least stagnant art form of the 21st century. What do you mean by that? Well, that's what I mean by their their variety. They're in this phase where they're you know they're still kind of a new thing. And I think what you find with art forms is that when they start out, nobody knows what quite what they're doing. So they're there aren't set tram lines down which they run and genres start to emerge, but there is enormous amount going on. So in these sort of early days of the novel, we started out getting sort of epistory novels and then, you know, wham, you get kind of Tristram Shandy, which just goes, you know, what are the possibilities of this form? And there's so much exuberance and excitement about what the possibilities of the form are. With video games, they're moving in a kind of accelerated way in that already dozens and dozens of different genres have been laid down. You do get an awful lot of stuff that's just like a version of the last thing that was a success. So Doom begets any number of first-person shooters and Candy Crush, God rest it, um, has created such a sort of appalling, drowning plethora of kind of slightly boring match three games for people's mobile phones that, you know, there's a genre that's absolutely you know laid in stone. But... You know, there's always someone coming up with something unexpected or a new twist. And because there's so much computing power available and there's so much that a computer can do, they're finding new ways of doing things. They're finding better ways of doing things. They're finding entirely different things. So, you know, oh, we'll simulate, you know, I don't know, people throwing penguins out of catapults. That's never been done. Whoomph. And there you go. And a lot of it's silly. And a lot of it's hugely enjoyable and some of it's dreadfully boring. But there's just a lot available to be 
to be made and discovered. Simon, uh, what do you think of that argument? It seemed to me that Sam's argue, arguments is that the, the, the technology is, and the, uh, the constant evolution of the technology is what pushes video games forward as an art form in a way that isn't the case perhaps with, with other art forms. Do you think, do you think that's, uh, that's true? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Video games are constantly evolving in terms of the the technology that they work on, the hardware, in a way that books aren't, I suppose. You know, the book has remained pretty much in the form it has for several hundred years. Video games, you know, a new console comes out with new capabilities. You know, Nintendo's a great example of this. Their machines constantly, they're constantly trying to find new things that their consoles can do that the previous ones haven't, be that a touchscreen bit you know, the Wii remotes that you can waggle around in the air. And their thinking behind this, I suppose, as the sort of Willy Wonka chocolate factory makers of video games is these new physical attributes of a console can lead to new untapped rooms of playability and interest and inventiveness. So yeah, that that's definitely true. There's, yeah, as Sam says, there's a huge amount of innovation just simply to hold the attention of this mass audience you know a far greater audience than any other medium in the world right now and when you've got millions and millions of people playing a particular game like Fortnite, for example every week they can exhaust perhaps their interest in that particular style of game so there's this sort of economic imperative to keep things interesting to add new twists and iterations and ideas to to hold the attention away from your competitors um, so that's all in the mix as well do you think that video games are still under underappreciated as an art form or do you get a sense that that's changing that perhaps they are taken a little bit more seriously than they were you know 10 years ago or so yeah i think it is changing as said you know sam says that video games economically have been dominant for 30, 40 years now, you know, when the new Grand Theft Auto was announced, ITV News asked if I'd come on and talk about how, hey, video games are sort of becoming, they're making so much money now. Now, people have been saying that for (laughs) 40 years now, you know, it feels to me like that's a bit like an ant standing on top of its anthill and pointing at a mountain and going, hey, look at mountains, aren't they getting big now? It's like, (laughs) you have no idea the scale of, of this thing, how much it's dwarfing your enterprise. But I think that speaks to the fact that culturally, video games are still seen as a minnow, something that is you know, really an obsession of childhood. Perhaps perhaps you could pick it up again when you're retired, a bit like you would with Bridge. You know, So I think the, the cultural impact of video games is definitely still, is still minor, and that is changing as more games are coming out with perhaps more literary intentions, with... You know, games like What Remains of Edith Finch, for example, or Papers, Please, which are trying to do something a bit different than just creating digital forms of sport. They're trying to provide some sort of social commentary. And as more games are starting to do that, I guess the estimation in which the medium is held starts to rise. But there's still, you know, this sort of old media, you know, the fact we're even having this conversation at the spectator sort of, you know, discussing whether video games are meaningful culturally still says something, you know, in 2024, that's still a concern for the cultural gatekeepers, I suppose, um, around the world for, you know, are we going to talk about video games if the London Review of Books doesn't cover them? You know, the New Yorker, you know, I cover games occasionally for them, but it's still in a sort of arm's length type way, I would say. So 
that's taking a while to 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 change. Now, I wonder what Simon's take on this is, and I'd, I'd be interested. In it. My sense is that they're they're kind of one of the things that they're handicapped by in terms of the cultural conversation is also one of the things that's interesting about them, in that because particularly people who don't play them, they they try and look for comparators most often things like film or sport and those comparators sort of slightly miss what's interesting about games themselves they're sort of intrinsic virtues as an art form because you think all right it's on a screen it's got you know very often you know characters walking around and big science fiction sets and so forth and so you think oh it's it, it's a bit like a movie and if you compare it to a movie you're then disappointed because the things it does are things that movies can't do and the things that movies do best video games will struggle to keep up with. So still, they're not the place to look for, generally, great depth of characterization or subtlety of acting or, or you know, or indeed some of those aspects of storytelling that movies are good at, though they're getting better and better at that. But the, the quality of playability, which is at the centre, you know, because they're interactive, that's the centre of what video games do, is something that we still ha- sort of struggle to get a handle on culturally. And so we look, we look in them and are disappointed for things that actually you shouldn't be expected to be there in the first place. Well, so Simon, is, I would love to ask you as someone who's been reviewing video games for The Observer for, uh, for quite some time. And what is it that you're looking for in video games and you're reviewing them that, that you, you're not looking for in other, in other media? So, uh, so Sam there was making the comparison with films and films that can't do a lot of things that video games can do. So what is it about the way a video game can tell a story that, uh, that you're looking for when you, when you are reviewing? And you mentioned earlier that, that there are games now that have, you described, uh, they have literary intentions. But how, how does that actually translate into the screen when you're, when you're playing? Sam makes this point in his piece that it, it can be confusing because they're no one thing, right? Video games, some of them are a bit like board games, some of them are like sports, some of them are like films. The boundaries of what a video could be are very expansive compared to a film. You know, a film has quite tight boundaries. Sometimes they're played with and you get very, very long six-hour films or whatever. But generally, you know, you're looking at a particular one thing. And if, a, you know, so the degrees of subversion that can happen within that are generally within a rather tight frequency. Whereas within video games, you know, you get games that are very much trying to be a competitive sport that lasts for years. You get video games that are trying to be a very neat 30-minute story. So I think when you're writing about a game and trying to review it, you have to take it on its own terms. It's That can also be a problem if, if you're, you know, writing for print and you've got a certain word count. You've got to establish, right, what is this game trying to do? What are its rules? You know, it's like you're trying to explain chess, then talk about the history of chess, then talk about, you know, a great game of chess you once had, and then talking about what the very best chess players in the world do all within 600 words, <laughs> trying to like then put a score on it. You know, that's that's the issue here that you're trying to do. So I suppose with the games that are trying to be literary and have a very uh, defined message and have perhaps a, you know, a more narrow range of interactive possibilities, those are the ones that, that are best suited to a traditional review format that you might find for a book or a film. But then, yeah, if you're looking, trying to review Fortnite, it's trying to it's like trying to review a city, you know, it's, there's just so many different things you could focus on and how on earth do you give a, a holistic appraisal. Mm. And Sam, just to finish, could you end by giving 
our listeners a flavour of what they might be able to expect from your first video game uh, review later this month. Do you know what you're going to be reviewing yet? Well, I, I, I'm still casting around a bit, but actually it struck me that there's a, there's a pretty new game called A Highland Song, which I'm looking at, which is about running around in the Scottish Highlands and jumping up Munro's. And it occurred to me that since you know, one of the common complaints is put that bloody thing down and go out for a walk and do something healthy and constructive. I thought I'd see whether there was a video game equivalent. <laughs> um, but, um, I, you know, still to be announced because you know, there's a lot of new video games. If you just say which new video games are coming out around Christmas, dozens, hundreds. Um, so we shall see. Well, Simon and Sam, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. And a quick announcement before the end, The Spectator is hiring. We're looking for a new producer to join our broadcast team, working across our suite of podcasts, including this one, as well as our YouTube channel, Spectator TV. You can follow the link in this podcast's description to read the full job listing. And with that, I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.